Hi, and welcome back to Good Romance. My name is Rachel, and I'm your host as usual. Today, I had the absolute pleasure of speaking with Elsie Marone, and we talked about Sadie on a Plate. I was just delighted. I had a great time, and I hope that you enjoy it, too. Thanks for listening. Thank you so much for coming on. So tell us what we know you from. Uh, so I am Elsie Marone. Uh, I write Jewish romances, or, well, romances featuring Jewish protagonists, Usually set in New Orleans, but not always. Uh, and I had a story published in Love All Year 2021. I have a, another story coming out in Days of All, um, which is another anthology coming out uh, sometime soon. And um, yes, I'm on Twitter at Elsie Marone. So it's probably where you know me from. I think we're actually both in the Days of All one. <laughs> I'm excited. I am so late on my edits. Aviva has been very gracious, but I was just like, hey, I've been having a rough time. Can I get you my edits like sometime? And she's like, yeah, sure, whatever. And I'm like, thank you. (laughs) I'm just when when things need to get done. I I used to be so good at deadlines. And now that I am like postgraduate school and like in, you know, like being a real proper grown up in the workforce, even though I've been working since I was. There's something about being. Oh, no, I'll never do anything on time again. It's over for me. Having that rigor associated with like, you've got to produce on this schedule. You got to do this. You got to do that. And it just bleeds into your entire life. And it can you know burn you to a crisp for sure. But then once you're outside of that, like structure (laughs) of having uh, your your days set Ahead, I have to meet this deadline and that deadline and that deadline. It can be a little difficult. To... Yeah, like when you have a list of deliverables, it does make things a little smoother. <laughs> Why doesn't my job have a syllabus? <laughs> oh, I think my job would be a lot easier if I had a syllabus. It's weird because like I tell people all the time, I spent 20 years getting properly good at school and now I'm done with it. What? I don't want to go back. I was miserable. What do I do now? <laughs> Now I just have to go about regular life? What's this? (laughs) If only every party and cocktail party and and dinner party had a syllabus, I think I'd feel a little bit more comfortable about with them. Like, okay, we're doing this. Especially with like hours. hours. Yeah. 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 And menu. Oh, I don't know if I could eat before. (laughs) (laughs) So, Sadie on a plate. Speaking of eating, Sadie on a plate. Let's talk about this amazing book. You have your very own copy. I did. Well, so I I don't know about you, but um, I, you know, I'm looking at a computer day in and day out. I can't, uh, I I, I don't always have the uh, fortitude to stare at a screen for more hours for my reading. So I always try and gravitate towards the, the print copies if I can and. Um, you know, not any knock on, you know, get reading on the Kindle or anything like that, but it just, um, my eyes are old and wizened and <laughs> crone like <laughs> at this point. I totally get that. I think that like, honestly, I don't really care about preference. I read in both. Uh, anything that I have that in advanced reader copy form is often in, in digital because just they don't do as many prints anymore. Um, but I work in a library, so it's kind of an occupational hazard of just bringing things home all the time. Like, right now, I'm when I left my previous job, I had like, I want to say like 30 things checked out, and I'm slowly working through returning those because I can't, mi- oh, I can't override the renewals anymore <laughs> and <what>? cheat. <laughs> but at my new job, I'm keeping myself like below 10 things checked out at a time. I'm, I'm being very good. Growth. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. Growth. Like, I'm really trying to not, because um, my eyes are always so much bigger than my stomach in that regard. I did check it out from the library because we had it. And I'm like very precious these days about what I buy, not because of money, but because of space. I have moved too many times to want to own more books than I currently own. <laughs> So um, I know your listeners won't be able to see it, but uh, I just recently put in some new bookcases into my into my room. They're very attractive. Yeah, thank you, IKEA. Woohoo! And so I now have space for all of the books that I've been buying that uh, you know I haven't had a chance to read. So um, my to be read pile is, which is, gosh, uh, in the dozens at this point, is just going to get unsustainably huge now. So oh yeah, I'm right there with you. I took like a 10-ish day, 15-day vacation between um, finishing my previous job and starting my new job, which is no longer really a new job, but it'll be the new job for a couple years. Um, And I barely got through any of my list. Like I have like my library book stack is behind me, which they also can't see, but you can. This is my library book area. I keep them separate because I don't want to like lose them into the abyss. Um, best practices uh, from, uh, from, uh, one, from one library professional to you. Please keep your library books separate. I don't want to realize that I have your school books <laughs> when I'm checking them in. And then I've got my stack of like books from a recent used bookstore excursion. And then I have, and that's in the other room. And then on the bottom, I have like a big built-in bookcase in my, in my current uh, abode. And all the books that I've already read are on the shelf. And everything that I haven't read is in an unwieldy stack. <laughs> And you would think you could just take something off the top of the stack, but that's not how it works. It's it's just you it's know, mood. there's yeah, there's there's a whole vibe associated with where you're gonna pick from, and sometimes it's like the color of the book. That's I feel like a green book today, and you go for that. But it's totally arbitrary for me. Sometimes I can like figure out what like, was for a while I was interviewing writers, and so I was like, I have to read everything that Catherine Valenti's ever written by March fifteenth or whatever, and. That was a lot of work, um, but like I could make myself get there because I had like I it was a, like a month or so out and I had some time and also you know pleasure to read so fun, um, but I'm just such a mood based reader like I'm like I feel like a queer regency romance right now or I feel like a contemporary weird science fiction thing like I I really don't have like I'm such a mood reader I wish that I had like a productivity reader in me but I just don't have it. I I'm a mood buyer. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, there's, I forget who said it, um, but there's, there's certainly the hobby of reading and then there's the hobby of buying books to read. And unfortunately Mm -hmm. these days I'm more uh, in the second category than the former simply because just life is so busy and, um, you know, I, I maybe, maybe if I'm lucky I can read a book a week, uh, if that, sometimes it's a book a month, sometimes it's a book every six months or whatever. Um, you know, I try to carve out some time on Saturdays to read, uh, but that doesn't usually take me too far, but, uh, that doesn't slow my buying habits down. <laughs> I could probably have a lot more disposable income if I didn't just stop buying books. And... Anyhow. I mean, it's kind of like the joke about how you can't really, like there's buying yarn and there's knitting, like the, the two separate hobbies <laughs> that I have. <laughs> So let's talk books. Let's talk yes. Sadie on a Plate. So, Sadie on a Plate. Tell me why you picked this book, why you love it. So this was one of the first books 
uh, I have read in a very long time that I just read in one sitting. Mm. I read it um, from start to finish. I started it at, uh, you know, in the morning on Saturday and I did not go to sleep until I finished it. I was reading it between, you know, cooking for my kids and like in between, you know, going, taking the dogs for walks and stuff. It just completely grabbed me. And I think the reason for that is because, um, so the the book takes place on a cooking um on a, a cooking show like a cooking uh, reality tv show and you know reality shows are structured to be very bingeable and you sit down and you watch seven episodes in a go and and so on this book is written like that right it's written in a very episodic format uh you know here's the the cooking challenge for this week and this here's this thing that you're doing for this week and then um, but what that, that does is has the, the effect of like making me want to just binge six episodes, which is really, you know, 16 chapters or whatever. So I, I could not put it down. I absolutely tried, but I couldn't. And I had to, um, keep on seeing, uh, who was going to be eliminated next and who was going to be, um, you know, how far, uh, you know, the, the twists and turns were going to go. So, um, I, I really enjoyed it. I really, really enjoyed this book. What did you think of it? I agree. I also love the pacing of it because it starts off like in the very first chapter, it's like very in your face, like we're about to get started. There's no fat on this book at all. It's just all, it's all lean meat. It's great. I think that like with a lot of like, I think this is a debut, but with a lot of like, like with, you know, rom-com type books, there's so much filler. This book, I feel like no no filler really. I feel like with a lot of books that are trying to like be tropey in the same way this is tropey but in a, in a good way because I like you know reality tv is very big right now um this isn't like fink relationship but, but it is kind of like there's some deception in there of like we'll pretend we don't know each other I think it's like tropey in all the best ways but without being like too structured like I like how it's different like she, she you know she loses and then she gets back and then she doesn't win at the end like if you get a second chance you have to win but she doesn't I would say, like, my favorite thing about the book is is Sadie. She's a great character, and I think that she, like, has so much growth in a pretty short book. It has kind of, um, like, uh, like coming-of-age vibes as a romance to me. Because, mm. like, Sadie feels like she knows who she is at the beginning and, like, what's going on with her and how she's reacting to everything around her. And then by the end, her perspective is totally flipped. You know, I'm so glad that you brought up the ending because that's actually my favorite thing about this book and I didn't know how spoilery we wanted to get about it so I'm glad that we can (laughs) can get spoilery so um I I really loved 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 the fact that she didn't win and I felt like um the person who deserved to win won in the contest Mm -hmm. and and I I Amanda Elliott did an amazing job of setting up the eventual winner and how you could see, even though that winner um, was a side character and, you know, but uh, not necessarily through the point point of view of, um, of Sadie, um, you could still see their growth. You could still see uh, that person's um, just journey as a chef and how they got better and what they learned. And I, I just, I, I immediately loved that character from like the moment that she walked on screen. So um, it was really gratifying to see her win, even though it came at the expense of Sadie um, not winning. And and, um, the thing I loved about the ending specifically. um, So if you I'm going to go on a uh, soapbox, no, a tangent here. 
Um, <laughs> tangents. This podcast is oops all tangents. In addition to being oops all Jews, I've made this joke like every single time I've recorded. I've never once stayed on topic on this show. Okay. Do your worst. Okay. Well, so so oops all Jews is probably very um, appropriate here because Dara Horn, who uh, is a, a writer, a, a novelist, and wrote um, her first nonfiction book, uh, People Love Dead Jews. Uh, amazing title there. Um, but uh, she came to speak in my synagogue uh, not too long ago. Oh. And um, she gave a mini course on Yiddish literature while she was here. And just uh, an understanding of, you know, maybe a thousand or 500 years of, of Yiddish lit in an hour. And one of the things that she pointed out was that Yiddish literature, traditional Yiddish and Jewish literature, they don't do endings in the way that we think of endings. Um, there's no conclusions. There's no tidy wrap-ups. There's no, uh, and then everybody lived happily ever after. In fact, if you have a, and everybody lived happily ever after, that's seen as kind of a hack uh, ending, right? There's, uh, the, the stories end in the sense that there are no more words being written, but, but they don't end cleanly in the way that American audiences, Western audiences have come to expect and um, have been trained to expect. And the reason, says Dara, is that um, the most hopeful ending for a traditional, you know, throughout um, history for Jews uh, is that there is no ending, that the story continues, that there is a future because for so long, for so many of us, futures uh, were, were more of an iffy thing. So the idea that the story continues past us and continues past the observer um, is very culturally baked into Judaism and Yiddish literature and so on. So um, why am I going on the tangent? Because Sadie on a Plate has that feeling. The ending is really just a new beginning. It's, it's the, you know, Sadie might not have won the competition, um, but she is getting to start a whole new chapter of her life with a new restaurant, new found, you know, new um, uh, uh, patrons and so on. Uh, Luke is starting a new chapter of his life. You don't know that it ends well, right? Like you don't know that they stay together. You don't know that, um, you, you know, they their restaurants are going to succeed. Um, but you just know that there's hope that they will. And I really loved that. I really, uh, it wasn't, um, it's not ambiguous. That's not right, the right word. But like, I just, I loved how, um, not unfinished, uh, but just that the story continues long past when the reader steps away from it. I also, I agree with that. I like a happy, I mean, I've never heard that before. Like the thing about, um, like Jewish storytelling being more open-ended. Although now that I think about it, it kind of drives a lot of stuff that I've been reading about and thinking about with another project I'm working on, but kind of thinking about it in terms of this book, like Sadie's like 26. Like, the idea to me that you have, like, a happily ever after. I like happy for now endings, especially for young people. Like, I don't mind a baby epilogue. I don't mind a marriage epilogue. That doesn't bother me. But to me, like, if the story is about the getting together and the falling in love and the working through obstacle thing, for me, then, that's the fun, exciting part. I would like there to be, like, a last chapter epilogue situation where it's like, and this is where we are now. But, like... The idea is that their lives aren't over. We don't have, like, a notebook-style flash-forward of, like, dying holding hands situation. Like... Yeah, it's true. And what you just said kind of reminded me a lot of the ending of The Princess Bride, 
uh, William Goldman of like, you know, and then Princess Buttercup's horse threw a shoe and Inigo's wounds reopened and like this, that and the other thing, which is such a Jewish book. Um, <laughs> people do not think about how Jewish that book and the film are. I mean, um, I forget who's the director. Was it Gary Marshall who directed that movie? I don't remember. It's been a long time. He's not a Jewish guy, but he has Jewish vibes. I think he's Italian, so they count. Um, <laughs> but Rob um, Reiner. It was Rob Reiner. Oh, Rob Reiner. That's why it's so Jewish, mm-hmm. of course. Um, but, like, you know, it has, like, you know, the ending is open-ended, but you know um, that it is, uh, you know, triumphant because they got away and, like, the, the enemy is defeated and, you know, like, it, it's fixed. Like, the situation has, the, the story that we've been watching or reading is over and now we're getting to a different part like the idea that there are like sequences in your life or in stories that start one way and then finish another way i've been thinking about jewish storytelling a lot lately because um i've been writing a video for passover about uh why the prince of egypt is the best animated film of all time it Um, truly is it is i i can't wait for that video well, there has been some media criticism of the idea that the narrative either, like, isn't really, like, appropriate for kids or doesn't translate well to film. And I think some people have called that anti-Semitic, but I don't think it is. I think it's just I'm going to unhinge my jaw and swallow them whole. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a misunderstanding of, like, the idea of, like, how storytelling can adapt to film. Because, first of all, like, the idea that, like, oh, well, we shouldn't adapt Bible stories. I'm like, well, first of all, like... Your idea of Bible stories, you know, your mileage may vary on, like, what you think Bible stories should look like. Because there has never been a big budget adaptation of the story of Esther. And that would be awesome. It would be rad, <laughs> like, yes. I'm, yeah, I'm ready for so animated cool. Esther. I'm ready for Princess... Uh, animated Esther for life. Esther. Um, yeah. Make her, like, the same, like, style as Mother Gothel. Like, just reuse all that footage. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. <laughs> my point is that, like, I think that criticism of Prince of Egypt for, like you know content or storytelling it's like you can't say that's too dark i knew about the holocaust from the time i was like five years old how is that too dark like it's just kind of a fundamental misunderstanding of like the audience for kids and the audience for jews and also the idea of like like oh is the storytelling like weird for movies only if you think of movies in a very western way (laughs) (laughs) only if you think of like this is the way stories are told and never the twain shall meet the three-act structure will keep us until we die like my only criticism with the Prince of Egypt is that all of the voice actors, you know, very few of the voice actors are actually Jewish. That's my only, my only issue with it. Uh, they're, you know, Val Kilmer and, and uh, uh, Patrick Stewart. They're all, and Ralph Fien. I mean, they're all fantastic people and, and great actors and Michelle Pfeiffer. And I just wish that some of them had actually been <laughs> not, not white I Americans. Mean- Perfectly fine actors. Um, I I really um, I, my my one criticism is that I would have liked um, I would have liked it if they depicted Moses a disability. I think that yeah, that's kind of a, yeah. a miss. Okay, that's fair too. Well, and then like, also he doesn't even say like, that much. So much of Moses's story is and and within Exodus and without Exodus, um, it's about very intentionally so about the power of family and relying on on people uh not just yourself as sole savior of people uh, you know people working together family working together to solve a problem and that's very much what happens in exodus like moses doesn't do it on his own he, ha- he has aaron he has miriam mm-hmm. and um the prince of egypt removes that 
I think maybe to make it more palatable to a non-Jewish audience who is more used to seeing a single person saving everybody, right? So Yeah. And I mean, I think it's also, you know, Aaron's kind of a sad sack in that movie, which to me, frustrating. Yeah. Uh, because Aaron's one of my favorite characters. Um, and like, of of the patriarchs, I think one of the least shitty. Um, <laughs> not to uh, badmouth my forefathers, but they did some bad stuff. They did. Uh, and most they of them did. were pretty bad dads also. But like, Aaron, like, has very few misses. He's got one really big miss, but other than that, like, he he's pretty chill. He's got some, he's got some big misses there. I mean, Aaron, let, let's see, like, the golden calf. Oh, yeah, it was totally wasn't me. It was just all those, those Israelites. Well, like, and also, like, he just has happened two to show kids. up. <laughs> um, he's also got those two dead sons. Yeah, right? Like, he's, he's not, uh, entire, but, but that's, like, that's part of the, one thing that I think makes the stories um, in the Torah so uh, relatable and so universal and, and have lasted for so long is because these people are not perfect and they keep make, making yeah. mistakes that anybody would have made. So um, I do like that they keep Moses like super flawed as a guy. Yeah. Like that's one of the things I think is the strongest about the movie is that it's like um, this is the Passover episode, I guess now. Um, <laughs> but like one of the things that's strongest about it is that like he's. You know, he, he does kill a guy. <laughs> he very yeah. much does do, do a murder. Yeah. And, like, I, I didn't know until recently, because I was doing the research for this video, that it's actually intended to be a animated adaptation of the Ten Commandments, like the, the three-hour movie from the 50s. Really? I didn't know yeah. that. I thought they were going back to the source. And, and, and I mean, they did do both. But okay. they were, like, apparently what... Um, What's his name? There's Charlton big, Huston? like, guy, the, the DreamWorks guy. Oh, I forget uh, uh, which uh, one he... There Starts with a Z. Katzenberg. Katzenberg. Yeah, Katzenberg. That doesn't start Except with a Z at all. <laughs> we did our best. We yes, did our best. Yeah. Um, but he's one of the DreamWorks guys. There are three DreamWorks guys, and I'm pretty sure they're all Jewish. Um, mm-hmm. Which, I mean, not unusual. Um, because we are very talented people. Um but he had been, like, lobbying for an animated version of that, I think, for kids. And he had been getting put down by Disney. And this is how, like, one of the reasons DreamWorks happened is because they were like, you can't play in our sandbox. And he's like, I'll go make my own sandbox. And mm-hmm. now we have Shrek. Um, <laughs> also a Jewish movie. Um, but your point. To, yeah. <laughs> so, so, like, circling back to the book a little bit, I do have some bones to pick with it about the food. What the heck is matzo ball ramen soup? How do you make that palatable? That sounds like I don't want noodles with my matzo balls. That's insane. <laughs> it's just a lot of carbs. Um, I, you know, I really, I struggled with the food as well. And it's not that, um, I think Amanda Elliott, she did a, a really good job. She, try, she had a very, very tall task ahead of her to try and elevate Ashkenazi food. Um, but Ashkenazi cuisine is a cuisine of survivors and like a cuisine of pulling all the garbage parts of the food together and making something palatable and preserving, you know, gross stuff and whatever you can scrape by before the crusaders come and burn your farm. Like it's, it's not a cuisine of, um, great renowned chefs throughout history cooking in palaces or whatever it's very much like a whatever uh we could cook that was left in the pantry uh or that you know like it's the it's the cuisine of subsistence farming right and i don't uh know that um 
it works very well in a situation of like high elevated Michelin star fancy food. And she, oh my gosh, she did such a great job trying to get there. But I think maybe it's just me and my own conflicted relationship with uh, Ashkenazi food, but I, I couldn't buy it. I couldn't buy it. So. Yeah, I think for me, it's mostly when you're trying to tell me that matzo brie is good, uh, that's where you kind of lose my sense right? of just like, I can't. Right? I mean, like, I love the idea that Jewish food could be. is what you eat be. when you can't have toast. Like, yes! <laughs> yes! And I, I love the idea that something, um, that the Jewish food could be something beautiful and special and gourmet. And I love that. But matzo brie? Really? Really? I felt like... Like if you're going to make anything, challah French toast is elite. There you go. Or, or challah, like, challah um, bread pudding, right? That could, that could Ooh, work. We egg have... in a basket with challah. Have you ever had that? No, I haven't. I haven't. There's lots of... My mom is a... Is, I'm very spoiled. My mom is like a, a deeply talented cook. Um, she's a home cook. She's never cooked for money. But um, she's like... She has the kind of challah where people ask her like, oh, can you make that? And then fly with the dough to come see us. Um, <laughs> <laughs> she's been perfecting... You know, she's got years and years of perfected recipes. But like... I was very spoiled, and so, like, to me, the idea of, like, elevated Jewish food, like, I get it. I can see it. My mom made very fancy food growing up, and, like, it was, like, you know, a, like, a mixture of Ashkenazi recipes and, like, you know, vague vegetarian food and then, like, some Middle Eastern food. Mm-hmm. And, like, she found a way to, like, make all of that, like, fancy and special and everything. So I can see it. And I can also see how you could even take, like, white fish and make it nice or, like, sardines, like, the kind of food... Like, because it is yeah. kind of um, very analogous to, like, the way that Southern black food happened in America of, like, how yes. can we take the, like, the uh, bottom of the of the stew pot, like, the least of what's left, like, chitlins, like, that kind of stuff comes from how can we make the very least of everything delicious? Yeah. And the answer for us was pickling, of course. Um, <laughs> <laughs> were, were we wrong? No, we weren't. I, 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 I feel like I'm being very down on, uh, you know, on, on the cuisine of my people. And I'm, I'm trying not to be. I mean, um, there's a certain... What am I trying... I guess the point I'm trying to make is that there's a certain romanticism that happens when you think about uh, fancy food, capital F, capital... You know, two capital Fs there. Um, and I, I just struggle to... Knowing about Jewish history... And knowing how much time we spent on the run or being kicked out or of where we lived or, or you know, otherwise being treated like crap, I find um, very little to romanticize about the food that came out of those experiences. Not that it's not good, not that it's not, it can't be tasty, it can't be, you know, wonderful, but I, I just, I, I, it feels weird to think of it in a four-star restaurant being served on china plates with fancy little folded napkins and you know piano wafting in the in the um speakers and so on so it's just um maybe that was my own cognitive dissonance and it was something i was bringing to the book and and others wouldn't feel that way but um it would be like no no i actually i really agree with you because i think jews have been so excluded from like the country club experience of the world like I think that it's because, like, you know, 
Jews these days, I mean, we're not going to get into a discussion of Jews and whiteness because that could take hours. <laughs> we'd never finish and then we'd both die on here. But like we've been uh, kind of forcibly assimilated in the last like 50-ish years into like mainstream white American culture, at least most Ashkenazi Jews who live here in the States. And so like the idea that all of a sudden we're supposed to like feel as though the foods that our grandmothers made us, or in my case, my mom, my grandmother was not a good cook. I identify with uh, Sadie very much that way. <laughs> my grandmother had a cook. Um, <laughs> but, you know, like the idea that like the food that to us seems like home food, like you never order that in a restaurant. Why would I order something my mom makes at home in a restaurant? Mm-hmm. Like a mm-hmm. restaurant is where you go for something like, you know, that you can't get at home. And... I kind of liked the idea of, like, all of the fusion, although it was crazy to me that in the um, in the part where, like, Sadie had to trade ingredients with somebody, why didn't she just make sushi with, like, like uh, everything bagel, um, like, make, like, uh, salmon and cream cheese sushi, and mm-hmm. then put, like, everything bagel stuff on it? Perfect. Get some horseradish. That's, like, an sure. everything bagel with horseradish. It's perfect. I should open a restaurant. I'm a terrible cook. You should. You uh, are just a Sadie in the making, Rachel. (laughs) (laughs) I really, I did really enjoy reading about everybody else's food. It did make me hungry. And, and I loved, uh, you know, this conversation that we're having right now, I feel like it's not something that went, you know, I, I feel like maybe the author was having this conversation with herself too, right? Like I felt like maybe... Amanda was working through some of her own conflicted feelings about food and, and our own cuisine and, and so on. And, and um, that was something that was reflected in pretty much every single side character's journey was their own complicated relationship with their identity and food. And I loved that. I loved that it wasn't just a straight, you know, like... What's a good example? A good example is there's one character who um, who is black and she keeps getting asked to make soul food, New Orleanian soul food. She's like, I don't make that. That's not my my food. Like my food is is this other type. But she keeps getting asked, well, why aren't you doing this? And why aren't you doing that? Um, and And I see that as a good mirror to like Luke's journey where he is, I think he's half Korean and he's trying to squash that Korean side of him because that's not um that's not elevated food that's not it's like what we're talking about right here like that home cooking that you have in Korea dumplings and like that's that's not fancy food that wouldn't show up in in um you know a four-star restaurant and so on so like it's it that was one thing that I I really liked that there is no um these conversations were happening on the page and there were no easy answers, right? I could not tell you what Amanda Elliott was trying to say about um, how people should feel about their identity in food because there were uh, many different answers, many different explorations of it. And Sadie's way was different than Luke's way, which was different than Kel's way, which was different than Nia's way. And none of them were right. None of them were wrong. It was just everybody had an individual journey with expressing their identity on a plate. And I... I that was so cool. That was so cool. I really liked that. I agree. And I think it also really, it puts forward what I really like about this book. One of the things I think is so strong about it is that all of the side characters are so well fleshed out and do have their own journeys without the book feeling like so hopelessly cluttered. Like, you know, when you read a book, there's the two bad sides of it. The one where all these friends are just here to be bounced off of and the one where 
this character has so much side plot that it's basically just another narrative and I'm exhausted by it. This is like Goldilocks perfect. Like I really loved how, particularly with Caitlyn, I love Mm -hmm. Caitlyn because I feel like that's such a subversion of like the mean girl thing. And like, you know, the envy of the other girl. Uh, Caitlin, for anyone who hasn't read the book and is, is still listening <laughs> to our very, very, very niche spoilery, podcast but... now. This is so niche. Um, she turns out to like be a friend. And Sadie has just been perceiving all of this through her, like a, sh- of, like a sheen of jealousy. And then now she can like, you know, find this friendship with this person and be strengthened by it. And also like, you know, have this relationship that she wouldn't have had if she'd allowed her previous preconceptions to like, guide her in this way i love that and i like um i really like vanilla joe as a character i hate him (laughs) but i hate i like hating him yeah because he is just like a regular asshole like i love people in books who aren't cartoon villains but are like very standard asshole and i think one of the most assholey things about him is how he screws over kel there's a non-binary chef who is like one of sadie's friends on the show not like a pre-existing friend but like a new friend and they get totally fucked over by vanilla joe being a dick um and like they have to pay the price for that and that fucking sucks but it's kind of like um like a really normal life experience of like this is just a regular bad guy and that works because like he's not you know he doesn't have like a moment where he goes mask off and it's like ah he's truly terrible but he's like a little bit racist and a little bit sexist he's just like a little bit shitty all around and that's perfect really like that's as i said goldilocks perfect i love how all these characters have this nuance to them like they're all very well thought out i agree and i'm glad you brought up vanilla joe because i thought he was really interesting in that he understood i think more than anybody else even more than um nia who obsesses over this show <laughs> and knows this show knows like ep could chat uh, uh, you know can can cite um, episodes and and particular dishes that were cooked on different seasons and different episodes and knows everything there is to know. Vanilla Joe knows more than anybody else. He understands the assignment. He knows who he mm-hmm. is and what his role is on that show, and he leans into it so hard. He knows he's there to be the va- the villain, and he's gonna make that happen. Um, he figures I out I think that the villains never win. So he knows uh, that he, he, like, can't possibly move to the finale um, and and take it. But while he's there, he's going to lean in and he's going to get as far as he can. And he's just going to indulge his instincts. And, and I, you know, it's really, you, you said something astute that there's no mask off moment for him where he's like, oh, surprise, I was just faking all along. Like, it's you're never really sure how much of it is an act and how much of it is really vanilla Joe's inner character. And I, I liked that a lot. You said something earlier um, that there's not a lot of meat on, on this, or uh, there's not a lot of fat on this book um, that it's a very lean book. It co- you know, does what it's going to do and gets in and gets out. Um, but, and I, I don't disagree with that at all, but I do love that it takes the time to explore these characters and give you just enough of their character and their um, their motivations that you can see the entirety of who they would be. Um, not just the, the character they'd be on the show from like the viewer's point of view, but who that person is behind the role, right? I, like it, it, it takes all, it is hard. It is really, <laughs> really, really hard 
to write a massive cast of characters. Um, but Amanda mm-hmm. Elliot's done it and, and has done it very well. Um, you never feel yeah. like any of them are cartoons or, or just cardboards, like you said, you know, cardboard cutouts. So it's really yeah. good. There's some great character work in this book. I only really had one bone to pick with it, which is that like, I mean, aside from the food, my only one thing with it was that I don't love, I feel like we didn't get enough of Luke's internal life, which is, it's a single point of view book. So, and I also would have liked to know more about his mom because we hear a little bit about his grandma and we see like, you know, his dad, the white parent, but it is so often the pitfall of these like half ethnic books that you really are separated from like the other side of the culture. And even though like Luke feels really connected to his Korean side, we don't know what happened. Like, is his mom alive or his, his parents are probably divorced, but like considering how much of a dickhole his dad is. <laughs> but, but does like, he really feel connected to his Korean side? I think he, he learns to get there, um, but he's very actively in the beginning um, of the book trying to, he, he realizes that, or he thinks that his uh, Korean side is holding him back from achieving the success that, you know, his dad is telling him that he needs to to have, that, that this image of success that he has in his brain is incompatible with cooking the kind of food that makes him happy and that he grew up eating and that he, you know, just, he considers part of, like, it's a secret. It's like a shameful secret for him. And he gets to the point, I think, through his interactions with um, with Sadie and with the rest of the the. Um, the cast but certainly with Sadie where he realizes that it's not a liability it's not a shameful secret it's something that you know he is interested in exploring more and that's wonderful that's great um but that's a really interesting journey um that I wish we could have seen but we couldn't because it's a single point of view book right yeah so I mean I think my my take on it is mostly that I think he he knows that he feels a love for this part of himself because he yeah. has that connection to the like the speakeasy restaurant that he takes Sadie to and like they connect initially like really really quickly um which was one, one really nice touch that I, I liked in the book was that like I didn't even think about how chef when you look at their hands you know someone's a chef because of like the knife cuts and the burns yeah. and like you know how your occupation sews on your hands that's not something that I've ever experienced um so like you know I find I found it really cool but like when he and Sadie connect initially so strongly and then he's like do you want to know a secret and he takes her off to get food like I think he really takes joy and pride in it in his personal life but it's kind of like um how but in his work he sees it as like you said like a liability like like as though like even the things that he finds joy in like where the joy is where the love is isn't where the profit where the prestige is and where his father's approval is i think like the journey for a lot of these characters in the book most of the characters at least to our chefs is like finding the joy and aside from like a couple characters who are like i know who i am and i'm i'm good with it like vanilla joe and like um like bald joe like um even nia to an extent like she knows who she is she just kind of has to um you know let go a little bit i think for a lot of the characters it's about like not just coming to peace with who they are, but like expressing that through food in a new way, because Luke is already a successful chef. Like he's good at, you know, the elevated French food situation. And why French is synonymous with fancy. <laughs> I want to open a restaurant, a, a restaurant, the elevated French food situation. Like that would be an amazing conceptual restaurant. Um, and, you have to take an elevator to get there. It's yes. on top of like a Macy's. It's on top of like a Macy's or something. Um, and you have to sit at a really tall table. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you make a good point about Luke. Um, you know, kind of being at the top of his game, um, but it's not really his game. 
right? It's his, it's his father's game. It's it's what has been the game that has been set out for him because he's talented. And as somebody who um, I think we've all probably been there, um, many of us have been there where we were good at something. We were really good at something, but it didn't make us happy. And you have to choose whether you're going to do the thing that um, you're good at that you maybe isn't uh, setting your soul afire or you have to do the thing that um, you, you know, does set your soul afire, but you may not be good at. You may have to work harder at it. You may have to like, I, I think that's a very relatable sort of um, uh, conflict. And, and I liked that. I, Nia was really, really my favorite character in this book. I loved her so much. And I loved her because she was so mathematical about everything. And normally, you know, I, I, I don't like the plot line of where somebody who's, who has a scientific brain or a mathematical brain, they have to just learn how to experience the art of, you know, whatever yeah. it is. You know, they have to... They have to you know, Go on a roller coaster. Scream yeah. on Machu Picchu. Right, right. Like, it's such bullshit. You know, if your brain doesn't work like that, your brain doesn't work like that. That's okay. Like, it's it's okay to find comfort and beauty in numbers and to know that your recipes have a exact, like, my, I have to put three-eighths of a tablespoon of baking soda in this thing. I have to, like, some people really respond to that, and that's okay. I'm one of those people who's, like, I need to know what the proportions are. I need to know what the recipe is. I loved that um, she still had a journey to go on and that she still could cook something marvelous and, and that was greater than the sum of its parts um, and that she was allowed to kind of explore what cooking meant to her without having to get all artsy fartsy froofy froofy like you just have to go live love pray you know kind of um journey on on um there was a little bit of um trying to connect with the inner with her inner reason of why she cooks and why she loves to cook but it wasn't um in a way that was telling her that the current way she cooks is wrong, you know, and that, that the way she thinks about food is wrong. I really just, I appreciated that. So. Oh yeah. As a type A person, <laughs> like, like there are times when I do need to just like artistically be like, I got to just let this go, but I'm a pattern person. I need to like know where I'm going. I like to have lists. I am an on time person. Yeah, like, like this is who I am. And like, you know, I really just dislike the um, like the the motif of like, oh, the girl who wears headbands, she's really preppy, and she just needs to meet like a bad boy, or she needs mm-hmm. to like learn to let go and sleep in and let it out. And I'm like, I actually enjoy being buttoned down. I like who I am. I there is, a, and thankfully, I feel like we've moved away from this trend in uh, rom coms just generally. But in the '90s and early 2000s, there definitely was that trend of the uh, heroine who has her shit to completely together and is on top of things, and um, you know, is a very competent businesswoman or competent lawyer or competent whatever. But she just needs to she's learn how to let go. She's a busy businesswoman who only does business. Right, right, right. She's a businesswoman who's just very good at businessing. And 
but she'll never find love until she learns how to let her hair down and run in the rain and, and you know, get lost with a stranger and all that fucking nonsense. <laughs> yeah, that's how you get murdered. You can say fucking. <laughs> that's how you get murdered. Like, I mean, don't get me wrong. I think that there is, like, there's something to be said for comfort zones, right? But, like, I have a bunch of disorders. My comfort zone needs to be there for me. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. Like this, it's it's not um, a bad thing to make lists and to want to have a schedule for how you do your your life and how you you know it's it's fine. Like everybody gets through how they get through. And um, yeah, I'm not judging anyone for how they get through this veil of tears. Yeah, I mean, I guess I really, I really enjoyed her journey because it was like, I mean, first of all, I really related to her as like the, I've studied very well for this exam. Um, I want to get an A in this life event, a thing that is both normal to want and possible to have. Like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I relate to that so hard. Um, And I think what's, you know, what's really interesting about her is that like, you think, oh, she's just going to be like a stock character, but she has all these really nuanced moments like so many of the other characters do as well. And I thought that was like very special with her. And I like I think that it's right and good that she wins because like she is, first of all, the most prepared. Uh, I think she might be like the biggest fan of the show. <laughs> yeah, she Sorry, I mean, she my cats are being absolutely feral right, right now. now. It's totally fine. Um, she, she has, as you said, studied for the exam. Like she's watched all the shows. She knows all of the episodes. She knows what works, what doesn't work. Like she knows what she's doing. She has a plan. Um, I also thought that every single one of the funniest parts of the book, all the best lines, all the best scenes, all were given to Nia. Like she had the best. (laughs) There was this one part early on where they're sitting in, um, they're sitting in the car together going off to their first challenge and uh everybody is making you know funny jokes about um you know know, we're being watched by the the cameras and um you because there's like a little camera in the car um watching them and uh you know recording them and um because they're on a reality tv show um, and so everybody's making these like jokes about how much they love the car. It's such a comfortable ride. Our sponsor Ford is so, it makes such a nice car. <laughs> and then she, Nina just completely out of nowhere says something along the lines of like, and yes, I also love this car, which is great to have sex in or something like that. <laughs> and I just lost it. She, and like everybody just drops silent and I, I think everybody um has been in that situation where you know you you try to fit in and and you know ride the joke and maybe um say the wrong thing <laughs> so I just loved her I loved Nia so much yeah I, it's not really ever explained it stated explicitly but I got kind of like a neuro atypical yeah her, like too. maybe like a a light autism or like a, a general anxiety. Like I was like, oh, I relate to this way too hard for this to be a person with a regular brain. <laughs> <laughs> but I love that it wasn't spelled out. I love that. Like, okay, you you yeah. you know, it, it doesn't. And and I think that's something that's great about Amanda's writing is that she doesn't handhold you through so much of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you it, this all of it is there. And if you want to find it, you can. If you see it, it's there for you to discover. But, like, she's not going to sit there and spell out every single little thing. 
about it. So I loved that. Yay. <laughs> yeah. I think that like probably my favorite thing is all the interactions between the contestants because they do have these really fun conversations. Mm-hmm. Like I've been guilty in the past of like skimming to get to dialogue in various books because I'm like, when's the interesting thing going to happen? Mm-hmm. Uh, this did not, not with this book because this book does not brook skimming. You're going to miss something important. Um, <laughs> But I really enjoyed, like, the dialogue between the characters. I mean, I really enjoyed, like, kind of how much it needed you to pay attention. Like, this book really needs you to pay attention to it. Um, and I think that, like, I mean, and trigger warning for anybody who uh, has not read it, and there is some workplace uh, harassment, dating abuse situation. Yeah. Sadie's, like, what I think is really interesting about Sadie's relationship with Luke is that, like, she is really comfortable with her identity as a Jewish person, and so she brings that into her food. But as being a woman in the chef world, she's completely not a kilter, off kilter because of this abusive relationship that she had with her former boss, who then like fired her and cut her blacklisted and was just like the worst kind of dick with like a revenge porn situation. It was it's very bad, and like she like completely internalizes this and blames herself for being stupid. Um, so, like, she is really confident in this one part of her identity and knows that she is in the right for, like, celebrating it. But then this other part of, like, being a woman in this male-dominated space and being, you know, a victim of somebody who is in power and has treated her horribly, she doesn't have confidence in that. No. And, like, and then he kind of, he and a bunch of other people help her see that, like, that isn't, like, it's not all Luke. Like, everyone's like, this is not your fault. He is a piece of shit and we're going to kick him through the wall. He has to go bye-bye now. Like... And I think, in the same way, it's kind of a mirror of what he Sadie does for him. Sadie helps Luke kind of see that his dad's a narcissist. And, mm-hmm. like, even though he does not originally get along with his dad all the time, like, he and his dad have conflict, she's like, your dad totally sucks. And he's just like, what? <laughs> yeah, well, you have but... to figure, it's probably the first time he's ever heard that from anybody, right? Because his dad is so famous and has is surrounded by hangers-on, and so everybody loves his dad, and... Luke just figures there must be something wrong with me that I can't get along with my dad, right? Like there must be some, I must be the F up in this situation because my dad and I don't get along and my dad's perfect. And so I mean, that's one of the reasons why he just tries to be so much like him is that, you know, he figures his dad must be right. So you bring up, yeah, that's a really good point that Sadie kind of shatters the glass there a little bit and says, you know, actually your dad sucks. So, and he treats you like crap. <laughs> I feel like occasionally all of us need to be told, like, actually, you are looking at this totally wrong. Mm-hmm. Here is a new perspective. Like, I think a lot of this this book is about perspectives, like, yeah. and about, like, how you see things. Like, uh, even Sadie's parents, like, didn't see her career as, like, the passion and the joy that she found in it. And they only saw that through watching her on TV and how she excelled and how she was, like... I mean, and Sadie's parents and her relationship with Ramley is, like, a very small part of the book, Mm -hmm. but it still matters because it's, like, you know, this huge, um, like, it's it's a big thing for her for them to, like, be there and be approving of her and, like, understand how important it is to her, you know? What was it that her dad says in the beginning? Uh, It's revealed earlier in the beginning when she gets fired from her job and her parents are trying to make her feel better and... Her dad says something like, it's it's okay, you don't have to, you know, feel... He's trying to say something, but he says it in a very backhanded, sort of undermining way that feels very real, right? Like a, um, mm-hmm. a very, um, you know, 
it's okay, honey. You tried your best, and sorry it wasn't good enough. Kind of like if I, I don't know what I'm trying to, you know, you know, like it's, it, it was that yeah. sort of feel, and it wasn't until they saw her on TV through the lens of somebody else, a third, uh, you know, an impartial third party, um, to the extent that a reality TV show lens could be considered impartial, um, that they realized, oh, you know, my daughter's actually very good at this, and you know, I'm sorry that I ever made you feel like you were less than, and and so, so, you know, you're right. They didn't really linger. Uh, Amanda Elliot didn't linger on um, the the relationship that Sadie had with her family um, because it wasn't as toxic as Luke's was. It wasn't as mm-hmm. and, and yeah. there was more you know inner relationships to focus on. Um, but I think, you know. It, it is, um, it certainly is important, right? It, it, it dictates how she uh, views her relationship to food and views her relationship to the Jewish cuisine that she is cooking. So um, that's an interesting thought. Yeah. Hmm. I really, I really think that um, it's interesting how the book is kind of like a bottle book, you know, like a bottle episode. Yeah. It's mostly taking place in the, like, you get, like, a little bit at the end and a little bit at the beginning that's outside of the show. And I think that really lends itself to, like, what you talked about earlier with, like, how compressed and compact the book is in terms of, like, pacing and how it's, like, you're moving from one thing to the next thing to the next thing. Can't put it down because there's too much going on. Got to keep going. Got to keep going. I felt the same way when I was reading it because I was, um... I think I read it in like two days, but to be fair, that's fast for me. Um, <laughs> and like, I really, cause I have trouble getting through contemporary sometimes. I really need escapism these days. <laughs> and um, that just does not provide it for me. Job stress, no, can't do it, can't do it. Yeah. Um, and like, so for me, like getting through a contemporary these days, the getting it re- through really fast and wanting to read it like really, really quickly to find out what happens, really good. I was, I was really into it. And I think... I mean, there's a lot of books that I'm like, I'll read this and I like this and I'm not going to go and read the author's other works. I'm not going to like put them on my like my checklist for like see if they anything if they have anything out. This is one of those books where I'm like, I got to go find out what the, this author has going on otherwise. Like this is exciting for me. I'm going to go follow them on Twitter. <laughs> I I immediately, as soon as I finished this, I went and pre-ordered the the sequel, which just came out a few weeks ago. I haven't had a chance to, to read it. Ooh. Um, yeah, the best uh, best served cold. Um, it's a story about two um, dueling food critics who are uh, have to join for it's. I'm really looking forward to it. Um, it sounds great. Is, yes, I, it sounds awesome. Um, one of the things that, and I've read a couple of uh, reality TV show romances before, and in a romance, the plot is driven by the 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 love story right the love story has to be the the central plot uh narrative and the, and the central driving uh motivation for the plot um and that can sometimes conflict when you have a very heavy like plot heavy narrative like for example here's a very clear narrative that has to take place because Sadie is on a reality TV show. There is a script that these things follow. There is a narrative. Like, it starts with episode one. It goes to the finale. There's going to be, like, twists and turns. And anybody who's seen a reality TV show knows how the structure of a reality TV show goes. Like, there's going to be challenges. There's going to be, you know, a a late act reversal where somebody you thought was going to, who who had been eliminated is going to come back. Or there's going to be a twist. There's always a twist. Like, it's a very structured narrative. Um, and that in itself can be um, 
comforting and in the same way that like a very trope heavy romance can be. Um, but they can sometimes conflict. It, it takes a skilled author to be able to make a romance story work in an extremely plot heavy structure. Um, and I thought it worked here. I thought I, 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 I would have loved to see a little bit more Luke. Um, again, it's a first person perspective book, so you're not going to see a ton of Luke um, outside because Sadie is consumed by this competition. But um, it, it's it's tough to do that. And I think that Amanda Elliott did it well. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, by the very nature of the competition, like Sadie and Luke are separated, even though they're forced into proximity, they're also separate. When he wasn't a contestant, I was like, how's this going to go? Because um, at the beginning, it's kind of a fake out of like, is he a contestant in the same show as her? What's this going to be like? Are they going to be competing? And then it turns out, oh, no, he's a judge. I, didn't, like, I actually did not see that coming. I didn't. Neither I did he, I. Yeah, I assumed I he was, he was also going to be a contestant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was a good twist. That was that was a little chef's kiss right there. That earned a chef's kiss. Yeah. And I think another one that did this really well, I really like, um, I'm sure you've read some Alexis Hall. Um, but they had a book, uh, come out recently. Paris, Diane Kors is, uh, is about to crumble. Okay. And there's a previous book in a series that they have about, um, like a kind of a British breaking show type, uh, great British breaking show esque um, like series. Um, and so there's one, uh, Rosalind Palmer, I forget what the title is. Oh, Rosalind Palmer takes the cake. Yes. I loved that one. First of all, bisexual visibility for life. Um, Although, you know, they, they can have some serious themes in their books, so I appreciate, like, people being like, eh, maybe a little too heavy, maybe not for me, because, like, I really, I, I, I'm not going to delve into cartoon covers right now, because I feel like we've gotten into so many debates um, that are interesting and fun, and we don't need to, you know, go, have, like, a crisis over here about the publishing industry and how it's <laughs> so weird in its pursuit of romance dollars. Um, yeah. But I... I really think that, like, it really mastered the same thing that that, um, that she's going for in th- this book. That, like, it compresses, like, it has all the things that you expect there to be, but it also doesn't become predictable. Like, I really, when Sadie got eliminated, I was like, oh, fuck, it's over. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> oh, no, my baby. Even though you knew, like, you knew that this book, there was still, like, a quarter of the book left. And you knew. Yeah, that but there was I figured more it would go somewhere that, else. Yeah. I figured it would go somewhere else. And, like, also, like, you know, even though you know when they're not allowed to bone that they're going to do something, mm-hmm. when it is forbidden, that is the most fun. <laughs> so, like, you know they're going to do something, and even though you know that it's not a good idea, and they're definitely going to get caught, and something is definitely going to happen, like, but I wasn't expecting it. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. I think pacing is, like, one of the really strong parts in this book, and I'll just keep saying it over and over again. Um... Like, in terms, like, I have very few criticisms of this book. This is, like, a five-star read for me, um, which is great, because I've read so few books for this podcast that I did not like. There were some that, like, didn't meet my expectations, but this book I was just like, great, great Jewish voice. One of the things that I love so much about this is that it's just very authentically Jewish. She has to pee all the time. Same. <laughs> Her stomach hurts. I- also me. <laughs> nauseous in the car. Check. <laughs> Yeah, I felt kind of called out about that, too. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, oh, no. I have posted cringe. <laughs> um, there has been so much um, 
well, I shouldn't even say so much. It's been, there's been crumbs, really, to be honest. Um, but it feels like there's been a lot of uh, Jewish romances coming out. Uh, you know, new new authors, debut authors, uh, you know, older, more established authors leaning into their Judaism. It just is nice to see that, like, you know, you don't have to assimilate in publishing to get a book deal. And I love that. You know, that, that it's, it feels like... Um, Jewish people count? I don't know how else to say it. Like, our stories matter? <laughs> or at least... I mean, I think... I was talking to... On the first episode, I spoke to Alina Adams, who is the first um, trad-pubbed Jewish historical romance mm-hmm. in, like, you know, the 1980s or 90s. And, like, she was like, can you believe that? I was like, actually, I can. Because, mm-hmm. like, you know, I think that maybe I read one or two books from a mainstream publisher that had Jewish characters... As a child, and those were probably just, like, you know, the the series of Fortunate Events books, and they weren't even, like, the kind of Jewish that I was growing up. Like, I think one of the pitfalls of Jewish representation in all media is that they are so often just like, oh, yeah, I'm Jewish, my parents are Jewish, but I don't practice. But um, I really wish I was Christian, right? Like, there's, there yeah. is, that is a trope that just makes my skin crawl, that there is... You know, oh, I'm Jewish. I don't really practice. I really like Christmas music or I really like Christmas songs or I really like Easter baskets or I really like, you know, and just, you know. I've never met a Jewish person like that in my life. I've met Jews who were like, oh, yeah, I enjoy Christmas movies. Everyone loves Christmas movies. Right, right. But, like, I've never met a Jew who's like, I really wish I was a Christian who then didn't just go off and do that. Why wouldn't you just go off and do that and make yourself happy? No one's making you stay here. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, but it's like that's the only story to an extent that gets um, or up to this point has been told. That was the only acceptable Jewish character was one who was a self-hating Jew, right? Somebody who was um, ashamed of or apologetic of their heritage and uh, their backgrounds and just needed to fit in or didn't want to be too weird or felt like they needed to hide the fact that they light a menorah or uh, that they, you know, um, have matzo ball soup or that they're not there for, I mean, I, I can't even remember growing up and seeing any characters. I saw lots of characters lighting a menorah. None that, um, you know, took off for Yom Kippur, you know, took off school for Yom Kippur, right? Um, I think the Rugrats kids uh, having the Passover story was the only time I saw a, a representation of a Jewish family that didn't have to do with Hanukkah, which is basically Jewish Christmas. I hope you know, right? Like, it's just Jewish Christmas. (laughs) I've heard tell. (laughs) I live in New Orleans, which is an extremely Catholic city. And even our, uh, you know, we we have a very unique Jewish community here um, where it has not been unheard of to have, for example, crawfish boils at the synagogue um, or, you know, (laughs) (laughs) Like things like that, you know, Jewish uh, contingent going to the Mardi Gras parades. But um, it it does make my, uh, just set my teeth on edge to have a story like that. So uh, where there's a Jewish character who is apologetic for being Jewish. And that's one of the things I love about Sadie is that she is not apologetic for being Jewish. She does not, Mm -hmm. you know, have, and, and whether... You know, I personally, uh, you know, question her love of matzo brie, you know, aside, right? (laughs) 
I, I don't have fond uh, memories of my grandmother's kugel um, or or matzo ball soup, but like my my matzo, my grandmother's matzo ball soup came out of a box. But it's it's uh, like I appreciate that. I love that. I I'm I'm excited that there's a character on the shelves who's like really down for matzo ball brie and or for matzo brie and just wants nothing more than to share with the world how great matzo brie is. You know, I, that's, yeah, I that's love great. that for her, you know, exactly. and I think, I think that like the big turn, like, I think we got really like, I think that one of the problems that I trace back a lot of the negative Jewish representation in media is to disgruntled Jewish boys who feel very upset that their mother didn't love them the way they wanted her to. And so they portray Jewish women in a very negative light and Jewish men as like, you know, oh man, life is so unfair. Um, and so then there's a lot of like, even now, like there are some really negative representations that we've all seen recently that I'm not going to enumerate, but I think a really big turning point is Seinfeld because like even the characters that aren't Jewish on that show are Jewish. And so like in the 1980s and nineties, like would have been totally unheard of before that to have like a basically curb your enthusiasm, but in like 1980. I have to sit with that for a moment. That's a really good observation that Seinfeld was a turning point. Hmm. Well, because Jewish entertainment, like the Borscht Belt, like this, like Jewish comedians have always existed, but like Seinfeld having this, like being the biggest show on television yeah. for, like, for like five, six years and launching the careers of like, I mean, you know, people knew who these actors were before, like they were not, you know, untried guys, but I mean, everybody knows who everyone from Seinfeld is. They're all still working today. How many like sitcoms from, you know, the 80s can you see people still working today? Yeah. That's a really good point. I never thought of that. I never thought about that. And when we talk about, you know, um, famous Jewish uh, representation in Hollywood, um, I don't know why my brain just alighted over Seinfeld, but you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Seinfeld was the hugest, um, the hugest uh, show for the longest of times. I also think um, Schitt's Creek did a lot too, right? Shit's Creek. Oh uh, yeah, especially like because you know I think David is being like kind of a sexy guy is very special for us. We deserve sexy boys too. <laughs> well, but David and Alexis, right? You know, to your point earlier about how mm-hmm. um, Jewish women were seen as nagging harridans who you know um, were were just you know either. Either it was a beautiful Jewish woman who needed to be saved from her Jewish family, right, in the, uh, like, Portia from the Merchant of Venice, or she was a, a you know, a, a harridan who needed to um, just stop nagging her poor, uh, long-suffering husband uh, and, and just in the background. Um, and... Alexis is neither of those, right? She's spoiled. She's um, a pain. She, you know, has her flaws, but she's also um, got a really big heart and, uh, you know, grows a lot and is very clearly very beautiful, both inside and out. So, um, hmm, yeah, shit's Creek. I think we've had a great leap forward yeah. in terms of, like, how Jews are represented in media. I still wish that, like, because I never saw on TV and still haven't seen people who practiced the way I did growing up. And it would have been huge for me if I had seen, like, the same way that you see kids on TV go to church. Like, even when shows, like, that aren't, like, Seventh Heaven or whatever, that aren't, like, you know, on Arthur, they went to church on Sundays. Just, like, 
not and that's on PBS. Like church is just a normal part of their lives. I kind of wished that like there had been that for me. Because yeah. I mean like the biggest memory that I had of representation was on Arthur, Francine lighting her <laughs> candles. And I was just like, ah oh, damn, yeah, look it's me. I liked Francine best, so it worked out well for me. You know what was cool though was um I don't know if it came out this past uh, Hanukkah or maybe the Hanukkah before. It was Menorah in the Middle. Um, it was it was basically a Christmas movie, but it was a Hanukkah movie, right? It, it took place over Hanukkah, and it was a story. It was this movie, kind of a lower-budget uh, Hallmark-style movie about um, a woman who goes back home to her small town where everybody is Jewish, and she has to save her family bakery, um, and there's a comp, you know, there's like a countdown uh, to midnight, and she's got to get enough money. The family's got to get enough money to save the the family bakery. And there's a cute, um, you know, mensch who lives next door. It's like totally trope packed, and um, except it's all Jewish. And there's mentions of summer camp, and they, um, how do they raise the money? They go and call all of their, uh, their, you know, the, the the people from their synagogues, and and the synagogues, uh, synagogues, and like uh, all the people who know each other, and it's, every Jew knows each other, and 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 uh, they, they end up talking to people for hours and hours and hours, catching up with, uh, you know, this. I, mean, I, I just, I really loved it. It was so. Uh, unexpectedly Jewish. <laughs> it's a Jewish Hallmark movie. It reminded me a lot of um, Stacey Agdern's uh, books, actually, uh, if you've ever read Love and Latkes. I want us to have so many movies that there can be bad ones. It, yeah, I mean, like, look, this is not, this is not high art, right? Menorah in the Middle is not anywhere close to, like, a classic movie. But it is totally a movie I could pop on while I'm making something and, uh, you know, making mm-hmm. the... Uh, it's watchable. watchable. Yeah, it's watchable. I loved it. Yeah, like, I could I could come back and watch it again and again and not have to think too hard about it. So I love that there's, uh, you know, those sorts of options. There's other Hallmark movies that have been, or Hallmark, I say, you know, not specifically... In the style of Hallmark. That have been very pandery and very, you know, not not very Jewish, like... Oh, yeah. I did a project where I tried to watch all of them at one point, and it, it melted sorry. my brain a little bit. <laughs> I'm sorry. It, it, it physically hurt. I really hate... The worst part of all those, I think that I've had this discussion before, but I'll have it again, um, is where they explain Christmas to the Jews, and the Jews don't say, oh, I know. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, I'm not claiming to be an expert in Christianity. There are mm-hmm. a lot of things that I don't know. And there are lots of different kinds of Christians. But I mm-hmm. promise you that every Jew I've ever met knows the basics of Christmas. I will say this, though. I will say this. Uh, so my my kids go to a, a, a Jewish school. And um, we were walking around one day... Um, this was many, many years ago. They were much, much younger than they are now. And we were walking around. We saw nativity scenes. And um, my one of my kids asks, why is that baby? Why did the babe? Why did they leave the baby out in the sukkah? Why are the, why are there sukkahs? It's not sukkot. <laughs> <laughs> like, did, why are they building sukkah, a sukkah uh, so late? So. Um, I just wanted to live in that world for a little bit longer. <laughs> My kids didn't know. Live in the world of Jew who has it all. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. 
exactly. So. Yeah, I mean, it, it is, it is, like, I mean, as an adult, it's a lot different than it was, because when I was a kid, I also lived in a pretty Jewish bubble. Like, I went to Jewish private school, I lived in a Jewish neighborhood, I knew non-Jewish people, but it was not like I was, like, I, I did do, like, the decorated Christmas tree with your friend thing when I was nine, and that was fun, but I was like, I've done that now, and I don't have to do it again. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm good. <laughs> and, like, you know, my husband was very, very secular, and so he's like, well, we can get a little tree, and I'm like, no, we can't, this is my house, you can't have a tree in my house. <laughs> No. <laughs> I am in an interfaith marriage. So we do have the tree and we do have, um, you know, the, the, you know, this, that, and the other thing, but like, like you, my, or like your husband, um, mine is very secular. So, um, it's never, uh, you know, been a sticking point or anything, but the idea, like to your point that, um, a Jew could live to the age of, let's say 10, and not know what Christmas is and not know what Easter is and not know what like church is. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. It's laughable. Like I'll face. give people theology. I don't understand the, tr- the Trinity. And I don't think I ever will, but I know <laughs> when Christmas is, I'm not going to forget <laughs> Christmas. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. Like I, I, these Jews in movies, the trope, I guess is just, that they just, they don't, maybe they're like all a little bit colorblind or something. Or maybe they, like, need to get glasses. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, like, that's why they don't know it's Christmas. <laughs> I don't I don't understand. Their world is confusing. But, of course, once... And this comes back to what we were talking about earlier. Once the Jew does learn about Christmas, they are just enamored with the idea of peace and love and joy to all you know humankind isn't christmas just the most magical time of the year oh i'm a you know i love lighting my candles my weird little candles but gosh i just love christmas so much it's such a magical time like that's the message right it's it's not that Mm -hmm. jews and it's it's kind of an anti-semitic trope to be honest right it's the idea that yeah sure um, the only reason jews don't love the only reason jews aren't christian is because they don't know about it Right. If only you yeah. tell them, if you tell them about Jesus, then of course they're, they'll see the wisdom and, and the error of their ways. And of course they'll come. Well, yeah, we're just children who don't know any better. You yeah. have to teach us how to wash our hands. We just, or we'll we just haven't read dirty. the sequel yet. That's all. We just haven't gotten to the sequel. Yeah. We read the first book, but we haven't gotten to the rest of the book. Right. Yeah. It's one of like the more irritating things to me that like people are like, oh, well, you just don't know. And I'm like, actually, I've heard plenty and I'm good. <laughs> I'm covered. I I don't need what you're selling, actually. (laughs) And, like, I agree with you that it's an anti-Semitic trope, but it's also, to me, like, kind of silly. Because, like, the idea, again... Anti-Semitism usually is, right? Like, Yeah, yeah. I mean, it doesn't... It's kind of the way that, like, if you think about it for a minute, it just completely loses veracity with, like, the way that the world works. Like, you're like, wait a minute. How does that... No, that doesn't track. (laughs) The idea that, like... This person, whenever the uh, Christmas movie comes on the TV, they just go click. Like the idea that they've just never been exposed. Like it's 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 very telling of how Christians are with their communities because they have never been exposed to other cultures' celebrations of holidays, and so they think that being exposed to that is like you know like a revelational experience of like oh clearly I should be Christian now or. You know, and I also, I hate that all of these are interfaith relationships. I think interfaith relationships are great. And I think that, like, they strengthen our communities. And we have, like, a lot of unnecessary bashing of that. 
why can't Jews ever marry Jews? <laughs> right. Can we just right. have no, that, I'm please? Completely hear you. And and it there's but it comes back to I mean, this has been I'm saying this as somebody who's in an interfaith marriage. Um, it has been a trope for hundreds and hundreds of years of the Jewish woman being trapped in a horrible family who's Jewish and all she needs to do is find the right Christian boy who's going to come and save her from her terrible Jewish Shylock of a father. And then, you know, suddenly everything is going to be all well. I read, um, the most recent book I read was a, a retelling of the Golem um, by I, uh, Ellie Weissel, um, the person who wrote Night and Dawn and all of you know, these just amazing books. Um, and it was a really fascinating, fascinating retelling of the, of the Golem legend um, in that it was, uh, and it's hard to find now, so I, I, I will just kind of ramble a little bit, but um, it's told from the perspective of a grave digger um, in like 1600s uh, Prague. Um, and this is after the Golem of Prague has uh, vanished, right? It's gone up into the attic and, and is no longer active. And the person who could make it work is no longer around and so on. And the grave digger's like, well, why, um, you know, we, we still need the Golem. Why is the Golem not around again? Um, and... The, the grave digger tells the stories of how all of these, um, you know, all of these times that the golem saved the Jewish community of Prague. And if you're familiar with history, you recognize some of these incidents. You're like, wait a minute, it didn't happen like that, right? There was a very famous um, uh, uh, situation where there was a, a two-year-old, a three-year-old who was found, his body was found in a well, and um, he was clearly murdered. Um, and who got blamed for it was the Jews. Uh, all of the Jews were killed in this town. Um, and this is a real story that happened in, in um, I think it was Warsaw or wherever. But um, in, in this book, in this retelling, the golem saves them. And the golem makes it, makes everybody realize, oh, you know, actually this was just a Christian trying to frame the Jewish community. And uh, it didn't really happen. And so it was all these stories. One of the stories that is retold is the story of this um, Christian Duke who falls in love with a Jewish woman. And, um, you know, the woman uh, realizes that he's uh, trying to convert her and trying to steal her away from her family and her community, and she leaves him. And instead of how the story ending, how we know it would have ended, right? Like, we know how it would have ended. Either the woman would have converted and saved herself, and, you know, the community would have been wiped off the face of the planet um or she would have left and the community would have been killed and wiped off the face of the planet instead of that happening um she goes back to her family and the christian duke uh starts to learn more you can't forget her he wants to find her and so he starts learning about judaism and learning about um you know this amazing religion and 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 and, and converts himself he converts and then he goes and finds her and then they live happily ever after this now Jewish Duke uh, and living in, you know, the hills of Germany with his and, and uh, with his Jewish bride living happily ever after. That never happens. That never, ever, ever happens. Now, then in fiction now, like you don't see that even in the most progressive or Jewish stories. There's never a situation where a wealthy 
handsome Christian rich guy converts to be with a poor Jewish girl. Mm-hmm. Never happens. Big hole in our in our canon. So, um, well, I'm putting that on my list of things to work on. <laughs> I want to see it. I want to see it. I, that's a story I want to read. I want to read a duke who throws away his dukiness or duke duchy. Uh, to go live off in the hills with some beautiful uh, Jew Jewish woman in that's a that's a historical I would love to read. Sure, who wouldn't? All right, I'm rambling yeah. now. No, 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 I love it. I'm I, that sounds really interesting. I'd love to read it. I think, um, I mean, everyone's really you know like the people love dead Jews thing. It's the same way people love um, Holocaust narratives from Jews. They love Holocaust narratives in general. I have been recently talking about how. Um, I'm at war with the World War II book. Uh, I would like it to stop, please. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Oh, there's so many of them. And it's, it's always Jews and Nazis falling in love. It's always, it's always the, you know, the good, virtuous German soldier coming to, you know, conflicted, his loyalty to his, his country, his fatherland. Oh, but he's in love with this, you know, the actual good Jew in the attic. Oh my God, I hate them so much. I hate them. And there's so- I hate it, but even, I mean, I hate those with a fiery burning passion. There's a slightly less burning passion hatred for me for books that are about white, usually English or French people, um, and their feelings about World War II and how they are heroes and how they're breaking codes and doing white women, basically doing white feminism all over. And, like, it's kind of how, uh, and there's just no Jews and no recognition of, like, like, it's just a very, like, and, you know, there's a picture of a girl from behind just wearing a blue skirt and a brown hat. Like, it's, it's really, I find it so derivative and stupid. Um, and I also, like, I think that even by Jews, these stories cannot be great. But I think, generally speaking, like, there are so many good books that you could write that are actually, like, historical books about World War II and the Holocaust and about like like even just the um, the doctor at Auschwitz who would give abortions like yeah. her her story like somebody writing a biography of her and her and like how special she was and like how like her life after and like just that's just an amazing story what about that badass doctor who um who vaccinated the entire camp for typhus and gave the german soldiers a fake vaccine that was made of like rabbit pee like, did you hear that story? <laughs> like, these are the stories. Like, and I mean, I also, I want Jewish heroes and I want them to be like dealing Jewish justice as opposed to like, you know, just like the, the revenge porn of, not revenge porn, but like, yeah. you know, vengeance porn that we see of like, you know, American GIs. Like, I would like to see American Jewish soldiers. I would like to see like, cause you know, my family were ever, cause you know, if you were poor and you couldn't get out of enlisting, Every man in my family of that generation was in the war. And, like, you don't see their stories being told. It's, you know, Johnny McWhatever from Milwaukee. There are Jews in Milwaukee. You can write about them. Mm -hmm. Like, Mm. I'm just so tired of our stories not being about us. And the kind of stories people want to read about. Like, people love dead Jews things. People love dead Jews. People also love, like, Jews that have nothing to them. Like, just paper Jews that you could put into a story to be stakes. Exactly. They love when we are convenient metaphors, right? We, they mm-hmm. love when we can be a plot device or a fridge, right? A, you, we, we can be fridged. Um, you make, it, it's, it's such a, a problem um, that, you know, 
I think part of it has to do with how we, there's, there's a couple things, right? So one, the farther we get from the Holocaust, um, the fewer people there are going to be who, for whom the Holocaust was real. It actually was a thing that happened. It wasn't just a thing that happened in history books. And so our education around that, um, the Holocaust, uh, is not evolving to keep up with that, right? There was a sense of urgency, um, maybe even when we were kids, uh, that never again. We can never let this happen again, you know, because we, I, I remember Holocaust survivors coming to speak to me in my class. I remember having Holocaust survivors in my, in my family and like, they're gone now. There's nobody there to tell the story. We have to pick up the slack. And so it's fading and, and I can feel as it fades, it's, it's becoming two things. One, the, the, the horror of it just becomes something that is on a page that isn't real and isn't couldn't happen again, right? Never again. Um, well, of course, it's never going to happen again. Of course, but but it will, right? It, it will. Um, and then second, it always has. It always has, and that's the thing, right? You look at history. How often do pogroms happen throughout history? They're usually separated by 50, 60 years, maybe seventy years, just long enough for the generations to die out. Right. For the generation that lived through it to die out. And then the next generation, um, it happens again. And so it, it, it's um, we're seeing it now, like the, the whole the generation that lived through the Holocaust, they're dying out. And so there's a new generation. And it's not like a coincidence that there's a rise in anti-Semitic attacks and anti-Semitic, um, you know, anti-Semitism everywhere. Um, it's connected. Well, because- we know we know that like when. In the, you know, when there's societal strife, when there's, you know, when there's recession, when there is instability politically, people want a scapegoat. And it's always been us. It's always been and us. And, like, it's it's never not happened. Like, people talk about, like, how we're in an enlightened era. Everyone before thought they were living in the future, too. And it's it's just the height of arrogance to me to say, oh, well, it could never happen to here. It, w- it could never happen again. Yeah. Well, okay, you know, every Jew loses loses everything twice in their lives. Like, how are you going to explain to, like, you know, I think that we've had kind of an unprecedented century of prosperity in America, and people have gotten so, you know, complacent in a way. And so when they see, like, anti-Semitism rising now, they're like, they're so, like, you know, Pikachu surprised face. And I'm like, how can you be surprised? Like, she's doing the Pikachu <laughs> surprise face. How can you be surprised by this? How can yeah. you not have well, because, a passport? Because how that's can the you thing. not... That's exactly the thing, right? Because, and I'm sorry, I'm, I'm lowering my voice because my kids are starting to go to sleep. Um, it, it's it's exactly the thing. We're not taught. They're not teaching that. Like the Holocaust is taught as an isolated event. It is a thing that happened. Mm-hmm. And it is a thing that we moved past. But you're not taught that like the Crusaders came and just slaughtered Jews left and right. You're not taught that like from you know, the entire Middle Ages was just basically open fire. On, it was open season on Jews. Like you're not taught about Baba Yar. You're not taught about like all of these other pogroms that happened in Russia and everything. You're not taught these things in school. It's just anti-Semitism happened from 1939 to 1945 and then the americans came and cleaned it all up and we're you know it's over now and yeah and there's this like instinct also to valorize americans of like 
they came in because they knew what was happening and they knew they had to stop it because this isn't democracy and we love democracy. And it's like, if it were up to FDR, you and I would not be alive. Right, right. <laughs> We wouldn't be here or we'd be Russian. Like, those are the options. Right. And, like, it is, like I said, the height of arrogance to me. But it's also, like, a failure of education, like you said. Because I learned about the Inquisition in school and I learned about the Holocaust. And I learned a little bit about pogroms because most of the Jews I went to school with were, you know, descended from Ashkenazi Jews and so they came from, most of them, their families came here from Russia or Poland or the former USSR. But, like, I didn't learn about the whole Wikipedia page, like, 500,000 word long history of Jews being hacky sacked across most of the world. Like, why are there Jews of every ethnicity and race? Well, it's a long story. Yeah. But it's, a, it's also a short story, too, right? The short story is yeah. that we're the scapegoats all the time. And I remember um, when I first kind of uh, maybe opened up my eyes was um, I went to a Renaissance festival of all places. And there was a, um, you know, an exhibit there about medieval torture devices. And, um, you know, the, the torture devices that were used on um, people in the Inquisition. And so they had like, you know, these bodies and, and, and like models and stuff of, you know, brats eating people's bodies and, and, and here's the rack and here's the Iron Maiden. And um, there was a little tiny uh, side about, you know, how they would use this on um, people that they had accused been accused of witches you know being of witchcraft and and this is how they would get confessions out of them was to use these torture devices and i remember reading somewhere that um you know around that time that you know jews were often accused as witch like that's when um that's where the the hat the the witch's hat came from Mm -hmm. because it was bunny hats yeah the bunny hat is what the jews were forced to wear and that i think i was was 13 i like the synapses fired and like oh wait oh wait Jews were the ones who were in being used. Like all of this exhibit, I would have been in this exhibit. Like this would have been me in the Iron Maiden and on the rack and, uh, you know, having my innards eaten by rats. Like this would have been me. Um, and that was so um, eye-opening, right? Like, because I had never been, um, you know, I'd never been taught that, like as, as, you know, in school that the Inquisition was levied against jews right and you know it's yeah. I, I think every every jew has that opening the, the eye-opening experience but um not everybody else does <laughs> i don't know why i'm kind yeah. of lost the thread of i the think story. like for a lot of people there's like you have to have a dual consciousness with it you have to understand this is everything that's happened before and we have to be like we have to think about that but we also have to like understand that in remembering that we're not kind of I think I've, we've, we've been accused of being like bummers like oh like it's like people say to black people oh 400 years of slavery how dare you dwell on it to Jews oh 2,000 years of uh, oppression why would you still be pissed you don't like and yeah. to me it's like well I'm I am obviously pissed like my ancestors deserve better but I'm also remembering and all this stuff not just despite the people who were oppressing us but also to honor my people who survived like we're here like I you know I often think about like it's amazing that we're here at all it's amazing that there's any Jews left in the world at all yeah like and it's in spite of all the people who tried to destroy us and I'm just like well I am here not only to like you know because there are people who would be very abused by my demise but also because 
like, my ancestors worked really hard to survive and to get here and to thrive in America. And that's, I guess, okay, I'm going to bring this back. I'm going to, I'm going to bring us full circle back to say, oh, she's going to bring it back. I'm going to bring it back in two ways. One, um, I opened up by saying that I had just read uh, People of Dead Jews by Daryl Horn. And she makes the point that um, Jews think differently about time and memory. Um, That the way we remember things, um, it's, it's a very old way of thinking about time and memory. Um, time progresses linearly, always forward, but also we remember in cyclicality, right? Everything comes around. Um, you just look at the Jewish structure of the year, right? Every year we are we are um, receiving the Torah again. Every year we are escaping Egypt again. Every year we are um, having the revelation at, at Sinai. Every year it, it, we are celebrating the birth of the world. So. Every year we come back to the same events. So there's cyclicality, but we're also moving forward in time. And that creates a spiral. So the way that we live our lives is kind of in a spiral. So that was one thing. And then the other thing is that Sadie, uh, you know, I think that Sadie is spiraling towards, or or this book is spiraling towards, um, you know, something kind of beautiful, which is that... Um, and this is kind of gets back to why I can't really uh, fault Amanda Elliott for trying to elevate Ashkenazi cuisine, right? Because there's, um, as much as I don't have the warm and fuzzy feelings about matzo brie, um, I love that there is a character out there who does because, um, to your point, all the thousands of years that came before us uh, of, of us trying to be wiped out, like this is a cuisine of survivors and it's a cuisine of hard scrabble uh life and subsistence farming and pickling everything that you could see and just having to make food that you can easily (laughs) grab on the run but it's also something there's something really beautiful about surviving and and continuing to survive everybody you know outliving everybody who said that you weren't good enough you weren't um strong enough you weren't you shouldn't be here. We outlasted them all. And we're going to outlast all of them from time on. Mm-hmm. Like, there's no reason to believe that we won't. So um, mm-hmm. celebrating this cuisine that that embodies that sense of survivorship. Like, okay, I, I get that. I get what you're going for, Amanda Elliott. Still not loving the matzo brie, but I get what you're going for. Mm-hmm. And we're going to put it on a fancy china plate and fuck your French food. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I I really agree. I think that like in a lot of ways, like any Jewish story is a story that celebrates survival, and I think particularly like the idea that Sadie gets to be proud and Sadie gets to be loving and that she gets to like have that level of joy with it. I love that so much. And on that note, I feel like we've come, we've circled all the way around to the beginning. We've spiraled we've back come to, the to a good ending spot. <laughs> Yes, thank you so much for having me on. This was a real pleasure. This was so much fun. Like I told you, I've only ever had a good time making this season has been such a joy to produce. Maybe I'll only ever have Jews on. Maybe that'll be my new thing is that like even after the season's over, I'll just Jews only. Jews only all the time. It's it's a members only club, but for Jews. It's like a reverse country club. <laughs> I love that. But tell people where they can find you online. Uh, you can find me online at Twitter at Elsie Marone. That's uh, two R's. And um, I, that's probably the best way. If you want to reach out to me, um, lcmarone at Gmail as well. 
Um, my website is very much under construction at the moment. It, it's like a GeoCities page. Remember those with the, the little like construction <laughs> sign and the under construction? Yeah, like it's it's pretty sad. My website's so. never once been up to date. <laughs> but Twitter is probably the, the best way to find me for now until Twitter uh, goes into the, the muskening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Elno decides to, to ditch it for good. Who knows? I mean, well, if you think about it, social media is very Jewish in that it's cyclical. <laughs> it's true. Everything old is new again. <laughs> well, again, thank you so much. This is such a great time. And um, we'll have people look out for you. And thank you for recommending a book that I loved so much. Thank you so much for having me on. I can't wait to, to hear the episode and maybe do this again someday. Yeah, you're always welcome to come back. I just want to say thank you again to our guest, Elsie Marone. I just had a delightful time chatting with her, and I do hope she comes back. And thanks for making time to talk to me about Sadie on a Plane. I really loved the book. If you enjoyed the episode, please go back and listen to the rest of the season. We have a couple more episodes to go this season that I'm super excited about. Before we start season three, which is crazy, it seems like I just uploaded the first episode yesterday. Um, Our seasons always launch on February 14th, the day of love, Valentine's Day. If you're a hater or a lover, it's something to look forward to. Thank you so much for listening. And please listen to old episodes, leave a review, leave a podcast review. I don't know where you leave them these days, but you could. I'd appreciate it. And thank you so much just for listening. It means a lot. Have a good one. Bye-bye. See you next time.